In my uh, opening remarks before, I neglected to mention that the Foreign Policy Research Institute is based in Philadelphia, which you might have inferred from uh, Lawrence's many references to the Philadelphia area. Uh, but we do have programming in Princeton, Washington, D.C., and uh, in New York City, both here at the New York Historical Society and uh, private salons at the homes of uh, friends of uh, FPRI. So if you're interested in more information about us, there will be a handout at the back, or check our website, or our presence on uh, Facebook. Uh, Lawrence has kind of started the discussion of China. Uh, anyway, uh, that is the next subject uh, that we're going to deal with in a, in a different theater, as you can see. Uh, uh, China's rise is prob has been said to be probably the most important phenomenon in the 21st century in the field of international relations, because with the rise of its economic power came the rise of its military power, came the rise of its increasing assertiveness in its region to the chagrin of virtually all of its neighbors. And to discuss this, we have Toshi Yoshihara, who is the, holds the Van Buren Chair of Asia-Pacific Studies at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. He's served at various think tanks, including the RAND Corporation and the Institute for Foreign Policy Analysis uh, in, uh, at Tufts University. Um, that makes him a distant cousin of FPRI because that was a spin-off organization from us uh, decades ago. Uh, he's also the author of several books on the military balance in the Asia and Pacific. And he uh, is really one of the brightest young uh, students of China and China's rise to power. So please welcome Toshi Yoshihara. Thank you, Alan, and good morning. Uh, today I'd like to speak to you about the rise of Chinese sea power, using the rise of Chinese sea power as a way for us to imagine a potential conflict with China in the maritime domain in East Asia. As you can see from this opening slide, China has been busy. Right? It's been busy over the past two decades, building up a fairly powerful regional naval force. One of the main achievements that, the China, uh, that uh, China has been able to, uh, to accomplish was the commissioning of its first aircraft carrier called the Liaoning. And here we have a picture captured by Chinese TV of an image of these two known as shooters launching China's aircraft off of the Liaoning aircraft carrier. This image essentially captured the Chinese imagination. This was in many ways a top gun moment for Chinese citizens. Indeed, Chinese citizens began to get into this very similar pose, took pictures of themselves, and posted them on the internet. It became sort of an internet sensation, sort of like China's version of the Gangnam style fever that swept across this nation um, 12 months ago. And so, what we have is a Chinese guy on his bed, <laughs> a Chinese woman in tights, a Chinese kid on his couch, and then this creepy Chinese guy without a shirt on. Now, this might seem sort of strange and sort of funny, uh, but I think there are actually two points, two relevant points uh, that are worth making, and it's a way to sort of open up our conversation about Chinese sea power. First of all, this vignette shows just how much we Americans take sea power and our naval power for granted. 
We have multiple carriers operating in multiple theaters around the world. In fact, we probably have an aircraft landing or taking off as I speak right now. This is something that is very new. This is something that's very novel for the Chinese. The second related point um, is that really this is a national project for the Chinese. In many ways for the Chinese Communist Party, this is a prestige project. And so the Chinese government has gone to great lengths to buoy public support for this particular project. And the Chinese government has actually received a great deal of enthusiasm from the Chinese people. The Chinese people have been paying very close attention, not only to the carrier, but the overall naval project. And so one of the things that's worth thinking about, just using this vignette, is looking into the future, the intersection between Chinese sea power and Chinese nationalism, which as we know has been on the upswing over the past couple of years. Now, usually I'd like to start off my lecture with the so what factor, bottom line up front, why I should spend an hour of your time talking about any particular given issue. Well, for this particular lecture, I'm going to do something a little bit different and talk about what this lecture is not about. As you know, things in Washington gotten pretty polarized. Things have been cast in black and white terms. Things are either wrong or right, or good or versus evil. And the topic of China's rise, China's military, and the rise of Chinese sea power has been no different. In fact, the debate in Washington has boiled down to this. You're either a panda hugger or a panda slugger. Right? You're either per perceived as being too hard on China or too soft on China. And I want to emphatically state to you that this lecture is not about pandering to either school of thought, that we can in fact have a reasoned debate about China's military. I'm not going to tell you that the Chinese are coming, all right, and that we need to think up of some containment strategy now to kill the panda. But I'm also not going to tell you that China is some sort of an endangered species, a cute and cuddly one at that, that we need to treat softly and tread carefully. China is a serious power with great power ambitions. China was, in fact, the epicenter of Asian international relations for centuries during its dynastic cycles. So we ought to treat China seriously in terms of its growing power. But we should do so without painting China as 10 feet high or as uh, 3 feet high, right? We can actually have a debate that falls somewhere in between. Now, the figure on the right requires a little bit more explanation. That's Mr. Robert Zellick, a senior official in the Bush administration, who in 2005 uh, articulated this phrase, responsible stakeholder, as a phrase to sort of express American aspirations for China's rise, that China should at some point become a stakeholder in the current international system. This phrase actually sent Chinese policymakers scrambling because there was, in fact, no exact translation for the English word stakeholder, right? This vignette here, again, showcases the possible chasm in worldviews about basic fundamental assumptions about how the world and the international system should work between China and the United States. But I think that we can, in fact, have this reasoned debate. And there are actually two trends. And both of these trends emanate from China itself to, to allow us to have this debate about China's rise. The first one is the rise of the so-called military intellectual complex, as opposed to a military industrial complex. This complex is composed of analysts, scholars, and senior military officers in the Chinese military 
who have all spoken out loudly and openly in the public about China's choices in the maritime domain. The fellow on the left is General Luo Yuan. He's often on TV. He writes these very provocative op-ed pieces in Chinese outlets, talking about how China should take a much harder line against the United States on the high seas. The admiral on the left is Admiral Yang Yi. Uh, he has also been in speaking circuits in China and abroad, again, advocating for Chinese sea power. Indeed, he brought a delegation to the Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island, uh, to talk about the prospects for Sino-US maritime cooperation. So, the Chinese are telling us what they think and what they want, and I believe we ought to listen. We ought to listen to what they have to say. And so this lecture is in many ways a window onto Chinese strategic thought to get a sense, to get a feel for what they're actually saying inside of China about the seas. The second trend is, rather than the intellectual uh, one, is, is a material one. There is no doubt that the Chinese Navy has been advancing very rapidly over the past two decades from a naval force that was largely designed for coastal defense composed of obsolescent Soviet technologies to an increasingly capable modern force able to wage the rigors of modern warfare at sea as represented by the much larger modern ship in the background. That surface combatant in the background is often called China's Aegis. The Aegis, of course, is one of the top flight combat systems that the US Navy possesses. If you had asked the intelligence community or the China watching community if China could actually build a ship like that, say, 20 years ago, they would say you were insane. Right? Something is clearly happening with the Chinese Navy. Let me first of all take you back about a decade ago to give you a sense of how the West actually viewed the Chinese military, and in this case, the Chinese Navy in particular. Professor Bernard Cole of the National War College, a 30-year veteran of the US Navy and a well-respected watcher of the Chinese Navy, had this to say in his classic study of the Chinese Navy called Great Wall at Sea. His argument was, ah, what's the Chinese Navy good for? It's not a serious threat. The United States Navy is certainly an overmatch. The Japanese Maritime Service is an overmatch. And even the small Taiwanese Navy could actually make a go of it against the Chinese Navy. And I think what's interesting is that this statement here, written over a decade ago, reflected US attitudes towards the Chinese military. In fact, in the 1990s, in the halls of think tanks, it was not unusual to hear people talk about China's coercive option against Taiwan as a million-man swim. Right? A very, very derisive, condescending attitude about the Chinese military. And yet, this very same person, Professor Bernard Cole, had this to say a few years later. That in fact, based on the rapid Chinese naval buildup, that the Chinese Navy, a few years from now, a few years from 2013, will in fact be able to command the East and South China Seas, would in fact be able to exert hegemonic leverage in maritime East Asia. Wow. What happened here? How did this same person conduct such a dramatic about-face, essentially doing an analytical 180 about China's military? Something clearly is happening. In fact, here we have the former commander of Pacific Command, which is the military command that oversees US operation, military operations in the Western Pacific and beyond, had this to say a few years ago. He said, essentially, that the US intelligence community and the China watching community have consistently underestimated Chinese military advances year in and year out over the past decade. 
This is a blunt admission for someone of his stature. And of course, the Chinese continue to surprise. They unveiled this stealth fighter a few years ago. This was something that many analysts believed would not actually see the light of day until 2020. And there it was. And there we have the Chinese test pilots partying like it's 1999, celebrating the first test flight. This represented, in many ways, a, tacti a tactical technical surprise on the part of China watchers and the intelligence community. Now, one might say, so what? Why should this engage American strategic interests? After all, China was starting off at such a low base as a third-rate military power that whatever it does is going to seem like a major improvement. And of course, because China's economy has been growing over the past two decades, some of those resources are bound to find their way into the Chinese military. So why should we care? Why should this engage America's strategic interests? Well, the premise of my lecture today is this. The reason that the United States is the hyperpower, the superpower, the top dog of the international system, the dominant power, the big power on the world stage is this. It is America's command of the global commons. The global commons understood as any medium through which goods and services, including military power, can be transported from one point of the globe to another. Traditionally, the commons has been understood as the high seas, but of course, air is a new medium, an old and new medium, but increasingly space and cyberspace have become these new mediums. And it is America's capacity to make unfettered use of these global commons, to dominate the commons, that ensures American primacy in the international system. And if you think about all of our military campaigns, beginning with the first Gulf War, it has been premised on America's capacity to dominate the commons, to use the commons, to deny enemy use of those very same commons, and to defeat any enemy efforts to disrupt our access and use of those very same commons. It is this capacity that enables the United States to shape global events to ensure that the United States stays on the perch of global affairs, and it enables the United States to do these remarkable things like maintaining con constant air combat operations over a landlocked state like Afghanistan halfway around the world. No other country, no other country comes even close to being able to do this. We are really essentially the only country that can do this. Here comes the problem set. This is the so what. It is the emergence of the so-called contested zone in which local players are beginning to contest America's command of the global commons. The contested zone is the theory that basically argues that a local actor with uh, superior knowledge of local conditions can put together a set of capabilities, strategies, and doctrines that can make it very, very dangerous for American forces to operate in the commons, especially in their backyards. One of the key components of the contested zone is that in fact a second-rate and even third-rate military power can cobble together the right sets of capabilities to make it very dangerous for the United States to operate in their backyards. And as a corollary, what that means is that these local powers do not have to compete symmetrically, they do not have to catch up with the United States, they do not have to reach military parity, one-for-one -one capability, in order to pose some serious problems to U.S. armed forces. Now, this isn't just a theoretical debate. This concern about potential adversaries disputing our access and use of the commons has been expressed time and time again 
in some of the most important policy and defense policy documents of the United States for over the past decade. This one among, is probably the most prominent. And what is remarkable about this particular defense policy document issued by the Obama administration early last year is that it actually names names. It calls out local actors like China and Iran for being the powers that are putting up these contested zones, putting up the so-called anti-access area denial capabilities in the Pentagon's jargon or parlance uh, that's designed specifically to blunt American power projection capabilities in their respective backyards. And so what I would like to do then is to examine this problem set, which I think will become even more serious in the coming years. I want to unpack the contested zone. I want to first of all look at the theoretical underpinnings of China's turn to the seas and look at how that's informing China's decision to contest our access to the commons in their backyard. Then I want to look a, a bit at where the contested zone will likely take place. And finally, I want to look at the capabilities that the Chinese will be developing in order to erect this contested zone in maritime East Asia. And then we can, perhaps during the Q&A, talk a little bit about the hows and, and the whys, the strategic context in which this is happening. First of all, I want to talk about China's interesting intellectual embrace of this person, a, um, a Alfred Thayer Mahan, the second president of the Naval War College. This is an interesting intellectual shift the Chinese have essentially turned to a long-dead American sea power theorist for inspiration and guidance in terms of China's turn to the sea. Now, this represents an interesting intellectual twist in China's history because Alfred Thayer Mahan's writings were considered um, politically incorrect in Maoist China. During the period of revolutionary China under Mao's rule, Mahan was castigated for somebody who promoted Western imperial aggression, who promoted colonialism. And so he was essentially persona non grata. He was not somebody that Chinese analysts could engage with uh, very seriously during that time period. It wasn't until the 1990s and later when China opened up and reformed, when China's economic well-being depended increasingly upon access to the seas, that Chinese analysts began to embrace Alfred Thayer Mahan. Alfred Thayer Mahan is not only um, an important theorist, he actually had a real contribution to the debates in the United States at the turn of the last century. His writings inspired Teddy Roosevelt. In fact, Teddy Roosevelt fully embraced his writings, and as we know, he constructed that great white fleet that sailed around the world that signaled America's arrival on the world stage as a serious naval power. Alfred Thayer Mahan's writing has also inspired Imperial Germany and Imperial Japan, obviously with very serious uh, negative uh, strategic consequences for the global system. But nevertheless, his writings have been truly influential at the turn of the last century, and now he's making a huge comeback in China. Now, what evidence do I have for this? Well, I have about a dozen translations of Mahan's most famous book, The Influence of Sea Power Upon History. Uh, and these two books deserve a little bit more mention. Uh, because they are published by the Liberation Army Press, the official publishing house of the Chinese military. The first issue of this translation was published in 1998. The second edition on the right was published in 2004. The second run of the second edition was published in 2008, attesting to the voracious appetite of Chinese analysts uh, about Mahan's writings. And this is not just for the consumption of strategic elites. 
In fact, uh, there are all kinds of different types of translation of Mahan's writings for public consumption, including this book. And at the bottom of the cover, it asks rhetorically, does China need a carrier? And of course, as we all know now, the answer is yes, emphatically yes. What I want to do, though, is to unpack this particular book, which is a summary of Mahan's writings, um, but also a biography of Mahan. And it's written by two senior colonels of the Chinese military. I will go back to senior colonel Chen Zhou a little bit, but let me talk a little bit about what they argue in the preface of the volume. First of all, the two senior colonels argue that the pursuit of sea power is, in fact, an inevitable choice. That, in fact, China needs to pursue sea power in order to protect legitimate sovereignty and national security concerns, and that China needed to develop sea power in order to protect uh, China's commerce, China's growing dependence on the sea lines of communications. This interplay between national security and economic imperatives is precisely what Mahan was arguing about more than a century ago. And in order to pursue the sea power, they, these two authors argue that China needed to pursue comprehensive capabilities that not only included a large navy fleet, but they argued that China needed to pursue a large merchant fleet, a large fishing fleet, a large scientific exploration fleet, a large fleet for maritime law enforcement, and a massive basing infrastructure to support all these fleets. Again, this argument is very Mahanian in nature. In fact, Mahan himself would have recognized this instantaneously. This was what he was arguing for, for the United States 100 years ago, was to be able to pursue, essentially, a variety of capabilities to become a genuine sea power. Now, you might think, ah, you know, senior colonels in China, dime a dozen, right? There are a lot of them. Maybe these, you know, these two guys were simply underemployed, too much time on their hands, and decided to write something about Mahan. Well, think again. Senior Colonel Chen Zhou was actually the principal architect of the 2004 Defense White Paper, considered to be the most authoritative statement of China's defense policy. And you, you can see his Mahanian fingerprints all over this document, where it talks about the fact that the, that the international system will still involve struggles for strategic points and struggles for resources. The document specifically calls on the Chinese armed forces to develop the capabilities to command the air and command the sea. These are very, very uh, Mahanian vocabulary uh, that's being used. Senior Colonel Chen Zhou turns out to have actually not just some theoretical contributions to the Chinese debate, but actually has some real policy influence. On a personal note, uh, I actually had the pleasure of meet, meeting senior Colonel Chen Zhou when he was a visiting fellow at Harvard about 10 years ago. He was articulate, smart, and clearly has a great deal of policy influence. This allows us to bridge back immediately. We know, for example, that the Imperial Japanese Navy often sent their best to educational institutions in the West. In particular, Admiral Yamamoto, the architect of the Pearl Harbor attack, was himself a visiting fellow, perhaps not so coincidentally, at Harvard. Let me talk about the outgoing commander of the Chinese Navy, Admiral Wu Shengli. He wrote in a very authoritative journal talking about and explaining the rationales for China's pursuit of sea power. First of all, he makes a historical argument. He says that it was because China was weak at sea that China became vulnerable to external aggression during China's century of humiliation that began in the mid-1800s and ended with the unification and the standing up of China in 1949. And therefore, in order to ensure that China did not suffer 
external aggression, China would have to build up sea power capabilities. What is very interesting to note is that number there. He's counting, right? He's counted precisely 470 invasions, large and small, during that century of humiliation. This number is, in fact, the same number that all Chinese analysts have converged on. They all agree that China has been invaded from the sea 400, precisely 470 times. The Chinese are counting. They've got a chip on their shoulder, and they want to right this historical wrong. And that's what the Admiral's saying. The Admiral makes another argument. And this is somewhat jarring, I think, for many of us who are used to thinking of and talking about China in continental terms. The Admiral says, actually, in fact, China is an oceanic nation, and goes on and rattles off a bunch of statistics explaining why China is, in fact, a maritime, a naturally endowed maritime power. Then he goes on to say that the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese people have very consciously, collectively decided to pursue sea power as a conscious policy choice. And this interplay between geography and policy choice, essentially an interplay between destiny and choice, is again precisely the interplay that Mahan himself was talking about in his famous book uh, as key constituents of a nation capable of pursuing sea power. So much for the theoretical foundations of Chinese sea power and how China's turn to the sea is going to essentially increase our contact, our encounters with the Chinese. Let me now move on to where I think the contested zone is likely to take place. And one way to think about this in geospatial terms is what the Chinese call the first island chain, which runs through the Japanese islands, through the Ryukyu, through Taiwan, and terminates in the Philippines. Now, what's important to note is that this geospatial construct is very Sinocentric in nature. It's the first island chain, if you're sitting in Beijing, looking out into the Western Pacific. Interestingly enough, the Chinese give credit to, or more accurately, lay blame on the United States for actually coming up with this concept of the first island chain. Who are the villains in this Chinese storyline, in this Chinese narrative? Well, they're like Secretary of State Dean Acheson, General Douglas MacArthur, Secretary of State John Foster Dulles, and even President Dwight Eisenhower as the statesman, the strategist, who actually came up with this first island chain concept. Why? Why did the Chinese blame these guys? Because they have at some point or another articulated in public, in, in policy statements, about why and how the United States should construct a series of military bases along the first island chain in order for the United States to radiate military power along the eastern seaboard of Eurasia in order to contain Soviet and Chinese communist power in the early years of the Cold War. And there is, in fact, in the articles that I've read uh, in Chinese writings, uh, is that there is, in fact, at least some historical basis for this sort of conspiracy theory, although it's not really conspiracy. We did actively contain the Soviets and the Chinese. Here is a map that I was able to dig up from the New York Times, published uh, shortly after the Korean War. As you'll recall, there was the so-called uh, defense perimeter of the Pacific. It was a line that we had drawn, essentially, that would sort of demarcate our sphere of influence and our ability to contain Soviet and Chinese communist power. Well, in one of um, Dean Acheson's uh, famous speeches, he uh, very, very conspicuously left out the Korean Peninsula. Uh, after the outbreak of the Korean War, you see that defense perimeter inching westward to cover the Korean Peninsula. Interesting to note is that this western defense line uh, conspicuously uh, skirts 
to the east of Taiwan, because at this point, we had not actually committed to the defense of the island. Here is one of, one of my favorite maps of all time. It is a one that was drawn by the Christian Science Monitor. And it literally depicts American bases in the Western Pacific as an iron chain that stretches from Alaska down through the Aleutians, through Japan, and again, goes right over the Korean Peninsula, but again, skirts east of Taiwan and terminates in the Philippines. But after the Taiwan Strait Crisis of 1954, that defense perimeter inches westward further, now to include Taiwan, and that defense perimeter not so coincidentally terminates at the dividing line between North and South Vietnam, foreshadowing America's involvement in the Indochina War 10 years later. Now, don't let me put words in the mouths of the Chinese. Let me let the Chinese speak for themselves. Here's a Chinese map of the first island chain. You can see the first island chain starting from the Aleutians, down through the Kuriles, through Japan, through the Ryukyus, through Taiwan, through the Philippines, and terminating in Singapore. These white boxes signify all of the major US naval bases on the first island chain. But there's, if there's the first, then there must be a second, right? Well, there is. There's the second island chain that stretches from the Japanese islands through the Marianas and winds its way back into Southeast Asia, and it's centered on Guam, another major military hub of US military power in the Western Pacific. But wait, there's the third island chain centered on the Hawaii Islands, and the white box here simply says the Seventh Fleet. So you can imagine then, if you're sitting in Beijing, looking out into the Western Pacific, what you see are essentially concentric rings of American military power that starts from the American homeland and stretches straight into China's backyard. It is not surprising, therefore, that many Chinese analysts like to harp on the so-called American containment, that the Americans have not gotten over the Cold War mentality. Again, this gives you a very, very interesting geospatial view of Maritime Asia through Chinese eyes. Now, it's not just a defense security issue. This is also a very important geoeconomic consideration because the first island chain forms a series of narrow seas and uh, channels and choke points through which Chinese mariners must pass through both military and commercial. In fact, the Chinese cannot conduct trans-Pacific trade without at some point transiting through those choke points. And who administers the islands? that occupy, uh, that, 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 that form the choke points? American allies and friends, Japan, Taiwan, and the Philippines. The notion that Chinese commerce and Chinese military operations have to come under the watchful eyes of American allies and friends clearly do not sit comfortably with the Chinese. Here is Admiral Liu Huaqing, uh, who is considered the founder of the modern Chinese Navy. He actually uses the first island chain as well as, as a geospatial framework for talking about where the Chinese Navy should operate, at least in the initial uh, phases. Well, the first island chain forms essentially what uh, Admiral Liu Huaqing calls the near seas, which are the Yellow Sea, the East China Sea, and the South China Sea. So the first island chain forms these bodies of water that Admiral Liu believes are the essential maritime domain in which the, U, the, the, the Chinese Navy should begin to assert control. This argument for a near-sea strategy actually began in the early 1980s. This is, an on, this is a decades-old construct. And what we are seeing today, I would argue, is the fruits of the intellectual investment made by 
Chinese strategists and leaders like Admiral Liu. So here is a graphic representation of what Admiral Liu was talking about. What he envisioned was that China would be able to eventually be able to dominate the bodies of water bounded, not so coincidentally, by the first island chain, and then to gradually extend Chinese naval and sea power influence beyond the first island chain, but bounded by the second island chain. So Liu used the first island chain as a way to set up benchmarks for how far uh, the Chinese Navy uh, had to reach and when it had to reach those benchmarks. What's also important to know about this is that this is a quintessentially continental view of the maritime domain. What the Chinese leadership has been doing, uh, at least up until now, is essentially drawing lines at sea. Right? It's saying that this line right here, the first island chain, is our first geostrategic buffer extending from the Chinese coastline. Then we're going to extend our influence from there onwards to the next island chain. I think there are those who would argue that this very continentalist mentality might be an intellectual impediment to China's genuine development of a blue water capability. And I'm, I'd be happy to engage in that conversation during the Q&A. But nevertheless, this continues to, I think, dominate the Chinese discourse to this day. Now, China's greater naval activism, not so surprisingly, in and around the first island chain, has had an interactive effect with China's neighbors, particularly Japan. After all, Japan is the northern half of the first island chain. So whatever China does in the near seas is going to directly impinge upon Japanese threat perceptions. And for at least the past five years, the Japanese have published this map, essentially detailing Chinese naval activities, particularly Chinese naval penetrations through the first island chain operating beyond the first island chain. Um, a, um, an official from the Ministry of Defense reportedly told an American scholar that when he looks at a map like this, it's like ramen noodles pouring through the first island chain. Now, because of Japan's proximity, obviously, to China's coast, what, again, whatever China does will, in fact, impact Japan's sense of its security. In this very narrow sense, geography is, in fact, destiny. And again, I want you to note that the Japanese wanted to get the reader to get a sense of the Chinese perspective. And that's why they reoriented the map so that you're looking at it from Beijing, looking out into the Western Pacific. Now, this is not only having an impact on a regional basis. This is also having an impact in terms of America's position in East Asia. You can imagine the Chinese operating essentially behind the first island chain. China is a defensive central power operating along interior lines roughly demarcated by the first island chain. As a local power uh, dominating a central position in maritime East Asia, China benefits from shorter lines of communications and the ability to concentrate force in a particular space, particularly, say, over Taiwan. The United States, by contrast, as an exterior power, has to conquer the tyranny of distance, the tyranny of geography, even just to reach that theater. And so you can begin to see, essentially, um, an asymmetric interaction here, at least in a geographical sense, uh, that potentially benefits the Chinese. But again, the first island chain offers a very useful geospatial marker to really demarcate where the points of contact and interactions are likely to take place between the United States as an exterior power and China as an interior power. Let me now talk about my third and last point about the material dimension of Chinese sea power. 
Uh, and here what I'd like to do is to engage in a series of uh, historical bridgebacks to, in particular, to the Pacific War. Uh, a series of historical analogies that helps us illustrate uh, what China is doing. And in fact, to, to, to underscore the fact that what the Chinese are doing today in terms of its contested zone is really not that new. And to get a sense, you know, to get a greater sense of familiarity, in other words, with what the Chinese are doing today. So let me now, first of all, bridge back to one of the capabilities that the Japanese built for the Pacific War. The Japanese built these heavily armed destroyers. They were designed specifically to engage in night combat. They were designed essentially to use night as a form of concealment. And these heavily armed destroyers are armed with these long-range torpedoes designed to outrange the enemy fleet, in this case, the US Pacific Fleet. The goal for Japanese planners was to use these surface action groups using night as concealment to spring surprises on the Pacific Fleet as it sailed towards Japanese home waters. And the Japanese would then launch these long-range torpedoes in order to sow chaos and confusion with surprise at the beginning. And that they would engage in a series of engagements at sea, these battles of attrition, in order to whittle away at the Pacific Fleet as it neared Japanese waters. Now, while the technology has changed, the logic of this tactic has not. The Chinese has developed, uh, have developed this. It's the, uh, it's the Type 022 stealthy catamaran. That's a fast attack craft. Uh, its stealthy superstructure essentially gives it concealment. The Japanese sought to use night as a form of concealment. The Chinese are using the, the, the hull itself as a form of concealment. This ship is very, very uh, fast and nimble and is armed, to, armed with a long-range anti-ship cruise missile. That again is specifically to outrange the adversary, like, much like the Japanese long lance torpedo. And the goal of these fast attack craft is to engage in swarming tactics in order to go after much larger ships. These smaller ships pack a punch and, and really uh, it is able to go after ships that are much larger than itself. And that was part of the Japanese strategy by using these uh, smaller, much more nimble destroyers to engage the US Pacific Fleet 70 years ago. The Japanese also designed during the Pacific War long-range submarines that were designed to form picket lines deep into the heart of the Western Pacific in order to intercept the US Pacific Fleet. We know that the China's naval modernization, the submarine is essentially the backbone of this modernization process. And this submarine is armed to the teeth with long-range anti-ship cruise missiles, as well as wake homing torpedoes that are very, very difficult to defeat. I want to linger a little bit on, on, on this little bridge back exercise. And the concept is shore-based firepower. In other words, the use of weaponry on the land in order to directly influence events at sea. In the initial stages of Japan's Pacific War campaign, the Japanese very rapidly seized the southern resource area in Southeast Asia. And the Japanese made extensive use of these twin-engine bombers on the left. And in one of these encounters, they encountered a British task force, Task Force Z. And these bombers were able to successfully sink the two capital ships, the HMS Repulse and the HMS Prince of Wales. This incident represented the first time in which air power alone, specifically shore-based air power launched from airfields on land, um, that sunk capital ships while they were underway. It sent shockwaves to Britain and shocked Churchill himself. 
Uh, just to showcase to you what I mean by shore-based firepower, the Japanese were able to launch these bombers off of area uh, from, from uh, fields south of Saigon, intercepted the task force, and sank these two capital ships in the heart of the South China Sea. Another form of shore-based firepower is, in fact, the kamikaze, the infamous kamikaze. Really, if you think about it as a technology, the kamikaze is essentially a manned cruise missile launched from land. Uh, and we now know that the Japanese, in planning their ferocious defense of the home island, uh, had anticipated an American amphibious assault. And they had, in fact, put aside 10,000 aircraft, of which five to 6,000 of them would be exclusively used for kamikaze missions. Imagine if we had gone ahead with our amphibious assault, hundreds upon hundreds of Japanese crew, manned crew, cruise missiles, piloted cruise missiles, raining down on American amphibious forces. It could well have been a bloodbath. And what, what are the Chinese doing in this sense? Well, the Chinese have created their own form of a triad. They are developing anti-ship cruise missiles that can be launched from fixed sites, anti-ship cruise missiles that can be launched from shore-based aircraft, anti-ship cruise missiles that can be launched from mobile trucks. And we have a technical innovation that's worth talking a little bit about, and that's the so-called anti-ship ballistic missile that has gotten a lot of press coverage and a lot of buzz in Washington. And this is likely the airframe used for that. Now, how is this technology a shore-based firepower asset? Well, this map shows how the Chinese plan to use it. These ballistic missiles would be launched directly from the mainland. The warhead would re-enter the Earth's atmosphere at high velocities and with some guidance technologies would be able to, in theory, target a moving, target, uh, to, to target a moving ship at sea with pinpoint fashion. This has been unabashedly, the Chinese unabashedly call this a carrier killer. Right? This is a missile system designed specifically with an American platform in mind. There's no question. And when you put all these capabilities together, what you find is a, what's been called a maritime strike complex. The capacity essentially for the Chinese to influence events at sea, not so coincidentally out to the second island chain. The color gradation here, you see the darker color here, signifies the volume and the intensity of Chinese weaponry that can be used in those air and sea spaces. In other words, as a carrier strike group, for example, operates closer and closer to China's backyard, the deadlier it becomes, the more dangerous it becomes for US naval forces to operate in China's backyard. This is essentially a classic way of thinking about a contested zone. The Chinese are not trying to outbuild us ship for ship, aircraft for aircraft. They are specifically building capabilities in order to challenge our dominance at sea in maritime East Asia. Now, I want to make sure that we don't paint this as something that's entirely novel or new. In fact, the Imperial Japanese Navy thought in very similar terms. The capabilities that I showed you in the bridgeback exercises were designed to do essentially the same thing. The Japanese sought to use their shore-based bombers from the mandated islands and their long-range submarines in order to intercept and whittle away at the Pacific Fleet as it sailed towards Japanese home waters. The attrition arising from those attacks would even up the naval balance of power, and that would then give the Japanese a fighting chance to engage in that Mahanian sea battle here, that decisive sea battle at sea. And in fact, senior U.S. policymakers have Harken back to the Imperial Japanese Navy as a way to illustrate China's so-called anti-access strategy. For example, the former Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Ruffett, had this to say uh, to a press uh, uh, 
at a press meeting saying that the Japanese were in fact trying to deny us access into the Western Pacific. The Japanese were doing it and now the Chinese are doing it. The number two in the US Navy, um, Bob Work, before he joined the government had this to say in a monograph. That in fact this isn't even the second time, it's in fact the third time that an Asian power on the defensive has sought to deny us access. The first time, of course, is the Japanese. The second time were the, so were the Soviets during the late stages of the Cold War, when the Soviets developed these long-range strategic bombers armed with uh, long-range anti-ship cruise missiles designed to put at risk our surface fleet. And now the Chinese are doing it. Right? This is the third time in which the person on the defensive launching weapons from land outranges the capacity of our carrier aviation units. A close watcher of Chinese military affairs, Rear Admiral Mike, McD Mike McDivitt, makes a similar argument about how this is in fact the third time, in fact the second of the first time when the Japanese tried to do it, they did in fact try to use these bombers and submarines to attrit us as we crossed into the Pacific. But this is the point that's worth taking away from that. And that is that despite Japan's strategic blunders and operational mistakes, it still took the US Navy 30 months to tear down this anti-access wall. Something to think about. The Pentagon has essentially concurred that this is in fact what the Chinese are doing, trying to deny us access into the maritime domain and thus freeing the, them up to do what they might want to do inside of maritime East Asia. Uh, the 2009 report says that the Chinese are in fact reaching out, not so surprisingly, out to the second island chain, putting our surface fleet at risk. And to be entirely bipartisan, the Pentagon under the Obama administration makes essentially the same argument, that the Chinese are using offensive multi-layered capabilities to reach out deep into the Western Pacific. The most recent report published by the Pentagon was even more specific, that the Chinese are in fact developing these longer range ballistic missiles in order to put at risk specifically our aircraft carriers beyond the first island chain. You see, even the Pentagon is using the language that the Chinese are using to describe Chinese strategy. So let me conclude by talking a little bit about what the Chinese want. What are they trying to do? And then we can perhaps during the Q&A talk a little bit about larger motives behind China's drive to the seas. First of all, it's important to put this in some historical context. In 1996, as you may recall, Taiwan was undergoing its first democratic elections to select uh, its president. And the Chinese, in order to intimidate the population, to deter it from voting in a pro-independence candidate, decided to hold live fire missile tests that bracketed the island causing panic, causing tensions, causing a lot of confusion throughout the region. The Clinton administration, as a show of force, dispatched two carrier battle groups to the waters near Taiwan as a show of force to get the Chinese to back down. The Chinese leadership, to their dismay, in fact, to their absolute horror, found out from the military commander that their options for the show of force, zero. They discovered that they had very little military options to, uh, to deter or to counter this show of force. This was in fact a highly traumatic and humiliating event for the Chinese leadership and they vowed that this would never happen again. And it's not surprising that many of these anti-access programs accelerated after the Taiwan Strait crisis. Now what are the Chinese trying to do? Well they're clearly trying to deny us access and this is really an important way of thinking about how they're seeking to attack our strategy. Because for at least for the past two decades, 
we have taken for granted our assured access to both the waters and the airspace in maritime East Asia, as well as assured access to the bases that are so critical to our power projection capabilities in the Western Pacific. By threatening our access to those areas, the Chinese are kicking a strut from under a critical component of our regional strategy. Another thing that the Chinese are doing is actually less operational but more political in nature. As you'll notice, most of those military assets that I showed you are actually launched from the Chinese mainland. The most operationally efficacious thing for us to do, of course, is to take out those targets before they're launched against us on the Chinese mainland. Now, that's operationally efficacious, but strategically and politically potentially disastrous. And that's what the Chinese are posing to us. The Chinese are actually posing a political problem of the first order. They know that no president in either administration, now or in the future, would ever willy-nilly decide to order deep strikes against target against a great power armed with nuclear weapons. And that's what the Chinese are asking us. Are you prepared to do that? In fact, we dare you. We dare you to do this. And of course, the Chinese know from their own history that China is, in fact, a critical sanctuary. During the Korean War, we went to great lengths not to horizontally expand the war beyond the Yalu River. We went to great lengths to constrain our air power during the Vietnam War. You see, the Chinese understand the dictum from Prince's Bride, right? Never wage a land war in Asia. The Chinese are posing that dilemma to us in very explicit terms here. So what are the Chinese trying to do? They're not trying to defeat us decisively in a Mahanian sea battle at sea, carrier on carrier battles. They're actually trying to increase our perceptions of the costs and risks in intervening over disputes that Chinese care about, whether it's Taiwan, South China Sea, or the Senkakus. And that by increasing our perceived risks and costs of intervening in East Asia, they're, they're hoping to induce either hesitation, that we would hem and haw, we would decide not to decide, we would delay making a decision, or maybe even decide not to act at all, realizing that the costs exceeded the value that we attached to whatever dispute that the Chinese were involved in. The Chinese are hoping to essentially wrap up this dispute as quickly as they can so that they can present the international community and the United States with a fait accompli. This is a part of a larger Chinese deterrent strategy designed to deter us from acting in the first place. Their ideal goal is, in fact, to create such a situation in which the United States would never even have a chance to fire a first shot in anger. This is, going back to ancient strategist dictum by Sun Tzu, right, that the best form of warfare is, in fact, to win without fighting. So with that, what I'd like to do is to simply highlight that a fairly operationally military-centric concept like the contested zone actually raises a variety of strategic and political problems that I argue that we're only just beginning to grapple with. And, uh, and hopefully that has sort of opened up the floor for larger questions about Chinese motives and what this means for the larger Sino-US relationship. Thank you very much. Be happy to take your questions. Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, what should be our response to China at this point in terms of naval? Sure. Absolutely. You know, what's very interesting is that I think the United States has undertaken a sort of a triple-pronged approach. The first one is obviously much more military-centric, which is to think about where, ways when we can counter uh, China's anti-access strategy. 
that involves, unfortunately in my view, some very dangerous escalatory options like conducting deep strikes against Chinese assets on the mainland, trying to blind them to make sure that they don't know where we are in the Western Pacific. But we are clearly working on the military operations. So be assured that the Pentagon's working very hard, working overtime on this problem. But the second one, though, is, a, is an engagement strategy. The United States remains open for China to join in multilateral forums like the Proliferation Security Initiative at sea. We welcome the Chinese, for example, in engaging in anti-piracy patrols. We're hoping that these larger engagement approaches would, in fact, bring the Chinese out of this sort of zero-sum Mahanian mentality that the Chinese have been engaged in. The third part of this uh, triple-pronged strategy is to engage our allies. Uh, as I said, U.S. power projection would be severely hampered if we did not have access to our critical bases, particularly in Japan. So we are very, working very closely with our allies like Japan in order to make our bases more resilient, the ability to bounce back after, say, a potential Chinese first strike, so that those bases would, would resume operations shortly after suffering such an attack. That would enable us to continue our op follow-on operations following a, a, a Chinese first move. So I think we're doing quite a bit, in fact, to respond to this contested zone. Thank you. Yeah, uh, yes, just uh, beyond, uh, beyond China's fear of influence, what uh, intent do they have beyond that in a worldwide area in the Navy? Also, the question of Japan is Japan is, is a, a world, could be a world power itself. It is one economically, it could be militarily. Are they just going to sit by and let this happen? Those are two very good questions. Um, so I guess the first question is what, what, what might China want to do after, well, beyond, beyond, beyond the of influence. This is a very limited area, got yeah. a whole big world out there. Yeah. This, is, is this their intent? Sure, okay. Well, I have, I have a couple of uh, ways of parsing uh, that, that line of question. First of all, I think in a globally interconnected economic system, um, what happens in Asia doesn't stay in Asia, all right? Uh, if a kinetic war, for example, were to happen over Taiwan, um, that would have some huge economic ripple effects, right? Taiwan's famous for having a lot of so-called lumpy capital. A lot of critical industrial bases that are critical for the, supply, the global supply chain around the world. And economic disruption on Taiwan will have global reverberations. So I would not describe what China's doing inside of Asia as a, as a limited, even though geographically it might be limited, but its repercussions could be global in nature. Now, I think also that the Chinese are debating what they want to do beyond the first island chain. What we've, what we've already seen are the Chinese conducting, as I mentioned, anti-piracy patrols in the Indian Ocean to maintain good order at sea. The Chinese see that as a sign of China becoming a responsible great power. Uh, the Chinese have also dispatched naval forces to conduct uh, non-combatant non non evacuation operations during the Libya crisis uh, to bring Chinese nationals that are living abroad. So the Chinese are actually not only being defensive, in other words, strategically defensive in waters closer to home, but they're also expanding their influence overseas. The question is, will China eventually have a globe-straddling navy like the United States? I, I suspect the Chinese have a long way to go before they can do that. But, I, but again, I want to reinforce the argument that what happens in Asia does not stay in Asia. So it, it, what the Chinese are doing, even inside the first island chain, is in fact um, a, a, a global challenge in a way. Now, as for your second question, I agree. I don't think that the Japanese will roll over. And I, I would argue, based on my assessment of Japan's reaction to, say, the recent Sen Senkaku crisis, is that the Chinese were stunned that the Japanese pushed back so vigorously and that the Japanese have shown no signs of rolling over despite this 
ongoing Chinese pressure. So I think the Chinese have to recognize that they are in fact playing a very dangerous game. The last thing you want to do is to really spur a very serious Japanese reconsideration at, for example, his peace constitution or the limits on his defense spending. Being, you know, although Japan typically has been overshadowed by China's rise, we, have, we, we shouldn't forget China is still the third, Japan is still the third largest economy in the world. Um, if it exerted even just a little bit more in its, in, its, in its defense budget, it could make a huge difference to the, uh, to the military balance in a way that could, in fact, be destabilizing. Yes, sir. Since we have to look at China's rise in their navy as part of their ultimate ploy, which is exerting more influence, building themselves up as a world power, my question is, how are the neighboring countries, particularly the influential countries like Russia, South Korea, Japan, mm -hmm. India, and even the lesser influential countries like ones in Southeast Asia, mm -hmm. Indonesia, Philippines, how are all of them responding to this growing Chinese presence in their seas? Right. No, that's a, that's a fantastic question. And again, there are a couple of ways of thinking about this. First of all, we typically, when we think about a U.S.-China competition, it's almost always bilateral, right? We always think about, oh my gosh, we have only so many submarines and Chinese submarines are like this. But if you add up, for example, Japanese submarines, South Korean submarines, Australian submarines, if we, if we actually tie together the regional naval balance, and after all, these are all our allies and friends, the naval balance actually changes quite a bit. So I think we do need to think more holistically about the naval or the military balance writ large. The other trend, though, that's actually worrying is the fact that many of these countries, particularly the weaker Southeast Asian states, have pursued their own anti-access strategies. Vietnam, uh, Singapore, uh, Australia further south, uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, they have all procured or will soon procure submarines, for example. And it basically, it, it, an arms build up in submarines sort of in slow motion. But I think one of the futures that we need to be thinking about as these regional states respond to China's rise and build their own anti-access for, uh, forces is a new form of MAD. So it's in addition to MUD, it's MAD, MUD, but also a new form of MAD, mutually assured denial. In other words, these regional countries that are, can actually deny each other's access to the same bodies of water. Now, this is bad for the, re for the region writ large. That means that no country would be able to invest in oil platforms in the South China Sea if those assets could be put to risk. That actually is a zero-sum game that hurts everyone else. Uh, and also, it makes the management of the water space in South China Sea, a very relatively confined water space, increasingly dangerous. What if there are bumping incidents under sea with more submarines operating in the same region? So there are both security and economic considerations uh, that, that, that have to be taken into account. As to other regional powers, I think that India will be a major sea power on its own right. My only caution is this. We must maintain realistic expectations of what we can get out of India. We have this notion, oh, India is the largest democracy, we're the oldest democracy, we're English-speaking peoples. We must be natural strategic allies. Not so fast. I think the Indians have, in fact, a, a long tradition of strategic independence. They're not likely to knuckle under our influence and, 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 and let us tell them what to do. They, they will be a stabilizing force. We, we've identified India as a net provider of security, but we have to sort of be realistic about our expectations of what they're prepared to do. The biggest, I think, wild card is Russia. 
The only reason that China has the strategic opportunity, as they call it, the period of strategic opportunity, to expand in the maritime domain, to develop all these aerospace and maritime capabilities, is that for the first time in China's history, there has been no threat to China's northern vector. China has always been threatened by the North for centuries, from nomadic threats, etc. That, no, that threat vector from the Central Asian steppes have disappeared, at least for the time being. This is, on, this is really one of the reasons why China has the strategic leisure to pursue sea power. If, for example, Sino-Russian relations were to turn sour for whatever reason, that could really upend China's strategic calculus. Now, whether we're prepared to play the Russia card, we have not shown any aptitude for doing that. Um, but but, but you know, if we were to somehow play the Russia card, that's certainly something that we should consider because that would drive the Chinese crazy and that would divert their resources and drive them to look landward for the first time in over 20, 30 years. Thank you. Yes, sir. It's interesting, Guy. It seems like historically we've consistently underestimated the Chinese ability. While if you look back in the Cold War, we probably overestimated the Soviet military capability. So I'm wondering if you think there's a chance that they've already achieved their objectives strategically and we just don't really know it. Our intelligence is not good enough to, to know that. Yeah, you know, this is, this is the problem with prediction or this is the, this is the, the structural problem with intelligence. We've consistently overestimated and underestimated. It's, uh, it's really easy to do both overestimating and underestimating. It's really hard to get it just right. Uh, and so, for example, um, our estimate of China's nuclear forces, for example, had gone from, eh, they can't even build nukes. Suddenly they go nuclear. We're like, whoa! Now they're going to engage in this massive buildup. We predicted this massive buildup in, in the 80s. It didn't. Actually, the Chinese nuclear forces stayed pretty stable. Uh, now there are those who are arguing that the Chinese are building up, but we're ignoring it. So now we're underestimating. So we're, we have this pattern of intelligence sort of pendulum swings of both overestimating because of some perceived new threat, underestimation, and then another overestimation as another perceived threat. So that, that's just a problem that's inherent with intelligent assessment. Um, but I think that one of, the prob one of the drags on our assessment of the Chinese is actually uh, the Maoist China period. Because of the internal upheaval in China, China it, it, there was a huge drag on China's research and development and, and China's innovation. And many analysts in the 1990s used essentially that period in history, from the 40s to the 1970s, as a baseline for extrapolating Chinese innovation. But China in 1977 is different from China of 1995. And so that's why we saw essentially a huge uptick in Chinese capabilities even while our assessment remained stagnant. So that's just one of those sort of intellectual uh, um, intelligence uh, blind spots that we have to be more self-aware of. Thank you. Yes, sir. You've limited your discussion to sea power between the United States and China. What about our land-based missiles, our cruise missiles on B-52s or wherever we have cruise missiles today, as a deterrent to their doing anything to our fleet? Right. Uh, actually, you know, one of the interesting debates that have been bubbling up recently are calls to revisit the INF, the um, Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty that we signed with the Soviets, which essentially and is, is, remains in force, that essentially outlaws entire classes of missiles of certain ranges. Essentially, we and the Soviets have written ourselves out of the medium-range missile game that the Chinese have been spending the last two decades investing in. Uh, and so there are now calls for, for example, for us to revisit that, that maybe we should get back into the 
medium range, missile range ga game so that we could have some leverage. There's also another line of argument that says, look, we should get the Chinese involved, in fact, in, uh, in this bilateral INF treaty by making it more multilateral. Get the Chinese, make China become a stakeholder in the arms um, built down as a form of confidence building and as a form of um, regional stabilization. So there, there are two arguments. Either we arm ourselves the teeth, tit for tat action, or we can bring the Chinese in into some form of a global arms control regime that recognizes China now as a great power, but also saying that great powers have great responsibilities and they must begin to build down and negotiate their capabilities as well. Couldn't we also though use our intercontinental missiles without nuclear um, tips on them uh, as a deterrent? Yeah, the, the, the issue right now is with cost. It is very expensive to build ICBMs, uh, and um, the, the benefit you get out of arming an IC, a very expensive ICBM with a conventional payload of limited um, of effect relative to a nuclear warhead makes it very cost ineffective. Now, if at some point we develop capabilities that make building long-range missiles cheaper, uh, that might come into play. But at this point, the physics of it makes it very, very uh, cost inefficient. Thank you. Yes, sir. The uh, Chinese for at least 20 years have been playing around in the South China Sea. I remember the Spratly Islands back in the 90s. Uh -huh. And they keep probing and then backing off. How aggressively should we be arming that ring of our allies? Because hmm. that'll really provoke them, but it's a risk. What do you think? Well, you know, <clears throat> I think that... Um, First of all, I want to sort of recount this, this pushing of, of Chinese actions. And, you know, we tend to portray the South China Sea thing as something new. The Chinese have been pushing this since the 1970s. They seized the Paracels in 1974 when an isolated South Vietnam was very weak. They then seized more of the Spratly Islands from a unified Vietnam in 88 when Vietnam was a pariah state after its invasion of Cambodia. It then seized one island from the Philippines after we, after we withdrew from the Philippines in 1992 and we had bad relationships with Manila. These are actions of strategic opportunism. They find a weakness and then they push. Then they went back to conciliate with the regional states because they were banding together in 2002. So we had a low, low tide. And then suddenly we're seeing now, beginning in 2009, this uptick in action. I think the drivers behind that is because many Chinese believe that their time has come, that they now have the power to really push back. Uh, they also see weaknesses in our alliance relationships, and they also see our financial crisis in a relative decline as another strategic opportunity. So given these austere circumstances, it does make sense for us to essentially enable and empower the local players uh, to be able to push back. Now, we shouldn't give them the kinds of arms that will likely lead to an arms race or greater instability. But we should give them the kinds of capabilities, defensive capabilities like anti-submarine warfare suites that can't be used for offensive purposes to give them the capacity to defend themselves. And for us to reassure them uh, that we would be there to maintain things like freedom, um, freedom of navigation uh, through the uh, South China Sea. Another enabler that I think is very important is the role of unmanned aerial vehicles. These unmanned systems essentially give these coastal states the capacity to provide for situational awareness over large bodies of water virtually continuously. The greater, I think, transparency we have, the more we know about what the Chinese are doing, and the more we can alert each other of what the Chinese are doing, the more likely that we can build greater confidence uh, in the region. So there are, in fact, capabilities that we can help enable local players to make it more stable in the future. Thank you. 
with uh, China being a pretty rational actor in the uh, multilateral trade, why are we so afraid to cede um, the control of that area of the world, Southeast Asia, Japan? Why do we need to have bases today in that part of the world? Do you think, what, what is the worst thing that China can do? They wouldn't be as crazy as attacking Japan. Maybe they would mm -hmm. fight over some little islands. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, John Stewart had a pretty good piece uh, this week, uh, basically saying it's time for somebody else's flag to be burned in, in the world. You know, maybe it's, wouldn't it be good for America to let uh, Jap uh, China become the enemy of, of some parts of the world and let the Filipinos, the Thai, the uh, Japanese burn the Chinese flag? You know, isn't, isn't that kind of like a rational argument? Yeah, well, you know, I, you know, I, think, I think it's the, I, I guess it's the, either the historical analogies or the historical lessons that we've learned from the past is that, you know, when, you know first of all, there's, there's one larger argument. I think the argument that's being propounded about, you know, America come home, right? Let those guys deal with their own neighbors. After all, it's their neighborhood. They should pick up more of the burden in defending themselves. Why do we have to shoulder much of the burden? One of the key underlying assumptions, I think, in these arguments is that somehow the international system and the global order is somehow self-regulating. That it's a clock that runs itself and that once you wind it up, you can do a hands-off and let it run by itself. But as we've seen from, again, going back to my, my my lessons from history is that we found, for example, uh, that when, when you don't have consensus about regional order, when you don't have an outside power that can provide that balancing role, uh, you can, for example, spur the so-called security dilemma, where the regional states get into a zero-sum competition, you have arms buildup, etc. Right? The reason that Japan has been able to maintain their defense budget at 1% for basically the last two, three decades is because of American security presence. We've, uh, we've alleviated the need for Japan to arm itself and therefore alleviated a key ingredient for a regional arms race. The United States also plays a special role. Amongst all of the powers in East Asia, it brings at least historical baggage to the game. There are great deep historical animosities among all of the Asian states. We are the lesser of all of the other evils, essentially, that exist in the region, right? China, Japan don't like each other. South Korea, Japan don't like each other. The Koreans don't like the Chinese. The Vietnamese hate the Chinese and vice versa, all right? We are the only outside power that really brings sort of a, a, a level of neutrality and evenness to the table that the other powers can't. Uh, and so for all of these reasons, the fact that, that I believe, that my, you know, my argument is that, the, that, that historically, International systems are not always self-regulating. They don't naturally check and balance. Deeply embedded historical animosities. And the fact that the United States has the political will and the capacity to be the guarantor of the international order, I think has been critical to underwriting the prosperity and wealth of the region. I would also argue that China brings to a table, remember my whole notion of the Chinese didn't know what stakeholder meant? Well, it underscores a, Chinese, a very different Chinese understanding of the global order. Uh, China historically has seen itself as the epicenter of East Asian international relations, and so therefore it has taken very exceptionalist views about the commons. In fact, they've staked out positions about the exclusive economic zones in the maritime domain, which says only that coastal states can claim jurisdiction over the resources beneath and above the seabed. Well, the Chinese say, no, actually, our view is that the EEZs in East Asia that we claim have sovereign jurisdictional rights. We can tell the US military not to do certain activities. That is contrary to the open architecture that has underwritten the prosperity of the global economic order. Could you imagine if the Chinese actually had their way and we had a much more closed regional architecture in East Asia? 
If you buy the argument that I've argued that what happens in Asia does not stay in Asia, a closed architecture in Asia would have much larger ramifications for the global economy. And if the United States has the will to maintain that openness, then I think that's all to the good. Thank you. <laughs>